Thanks for checking out this week's sermon. We're beginning a new sermon series called Church Words. This week's message is from Pastor Tom J.J. Wood and talks about the word holy. If you would like to take a next step, give an offering, or get more info about our church, visit our website. That's wordoflifeag.org. Glad we're able to do that. But um, so as already been mentioned as part of service today, uh, last weekend was a special weekend in the life of Word of Life uh, Church. So um, it was Pastor Randy, Mary Ann's last weekend uh, as we wish them all the very best into retirement. Um, and I've got some communication from uh, people from the church this week letting me know that the highlight of last week was the activity of my nine-year-old son. Yep. Um, I put together a highlight video and put it on my Instagram because it just made me so happy. I wanted a place to revisit regularly and often. Um, But I do want to say a genuine um, thank you to everyone here because um, I know that Megan would say the same if she was up here. Uh, Everyone has been so kind and so encouraging and so supportive um, for us as we've stepped into this new role and so into this new season. It's meant the world to us, uh, the the church community, that you guys have been so, uh, just so kind and just so, um, you know, good with your words and just all all the things. It was just been a wonderful time. So thank you so, so much for that. I had a chance this week, I had a couple of meetings with Pastor Randy, and so him and I had a chance to get together and talk. And I can tell you from him and Marianne that they were so blessed and so um, just so humbled um, by how last week went. They felt a whole ton of love and a whole ton of appreciation from you guys. So uh, I'm really glad that we were able to do that. And he asked me if I would read an email that he sent me this week. So I'll read it exactly as it is here. So this is from Pastor Randy. He wanted to share this with you. Dear Word of Life family, and then he goes on to uh, cite First Chronicles 17, 16. Who am I, O Lord God, and what is my house that you have brought me this far? Marianne and I say to you this morning, who am I, O Lord God, and what is my house that this church would bestow all this love and honor on us this past Sunday? And as David was overwhelmed with gratitude because of God's goodness towards him, we are overwhelmed with all that has been said and done since announcing our retirement. The cards and letters and gifts have blessed our hearts beyond words. Our hearts are full of love for this church, and we love each of you. It has been our privilege to have been called by God to be your shepherds. God bless each of you, and thank you for a weekend of beautiful memories we will forever have in our hearts, Pastors Randy and Mary Ann. So that was, uh, that was from them. And... Amen. And I also want to make sure that everyone is aware that if you have uh, letters or cards or something that you wanted to share with them, you can get that to us here at the church, and we'll make sure we will forward that on. So the window hasn't closed if there's something you wanted to share with them. Uh, There is one thing that I wanted to uh, say to everybody as we head into summer, and summer has all sorts of things that are vying for our attention, our time, and there's vacations, and there's things we're committed to on Sunday mornings and all that kind of stuff. So what I want to say to you, my encouragement to you, is that if you've missed church, don't miss church. And what I mean by that is that we have the full service available on YouTube normally on Sunday afternoons. And so if you have a commitment on Sunday mornings, if you're on vacation, if you're somewhere and you're not able to be here in the building, completely understand. My encouragement to you is that if you've missed church, 
Don't miss church. Make time. Find yourself an hour and a half in the week that you can watch the whole service, be a part of worship, hear what's going on, get into the message, the whole bit, and be a part of what is happening. So even if you're not physically here, make sure you catch up online uh, after the fact. Hopefully, we've got some good stuff coming up this summer that is going to be a blessing to you. But if you miss church, don't miss church. I don't work in advertising, but that line alone makes me think I may have missed a calling. (laughs) But anyway... I'm going to milk that for all it's worth. You're going to hear me say that every week. I'm so... Anyway, we need to move on, don't we? So we are starting into a new series. We're going to be looking at church words, and the, the thought behind this and the heart behind this is that there's a number of words that are used in and around churches. There are words that uh, you may read in the Bible that are uh, used as we talk about a life of faith and the things of faith and the things of the kingdom of God um, that aren't used anywhere else in everyday life. And so there are words that are said that if it's outside of a church environment or outside of a church context or a faith environment, they really stand out. They don't really, uh, they don't really mean too much out of um, something to do with faith, something to do with a relationship with God. It doesn't really mean too much. But there's a good chance that back in the biblical times that the words that are used in the original languages were very common words that were used many times, many different environments, many different ways that the church or the believers used to help express what God was doing in among them. So we're going to dig into some of those words over the next number of weeks. Um, I'm looking forward to what we've got. We've, I believe it's going to be a good series. But anyway, today we're going to be looking at the word holy, the word holy or holiness, and to what this means and uh, what it can teach us about living a life of faith, living a life um, of faith, holy, holiness, and what it all means. And I dug into some Bible dictionaries and some online resources that I have available. And I started to look at the word holy. And I'm not exaggerating when I say one Bible dictionary that I have, it covered over two pages of an explanation of the word holy or holiness. And so I've been able to break down and hopefully give somewhat of a summary, a composite from different uh, Bible dictionaries. So this is the succinct version. Holy describes the love, goodness, and perfection of God that separates him from evil and makes him completely distinct. His holiness sets him apart, and he exists in a state of holiness. In the Bible, the word holy is never used unassociated from God. It refers primarily to God's character, but also to what he has sanctified and declared holy. Now, that's a mouthful, to say the least, and it's certainly not memorable. So the boil down, the most brief version that I could come up with, something that hopefully is more manageable than that, is simply that holy is God's unique perfection, which is both separate and creates separation from what is common or evil. God's unique perfection, which is both separate and creates separation from what is common or evil. God is uniquely perfect in both character, in morality, in his state of existence, and it is completely beyond human comprehension. And it needs to be approached properly. This is why God would say to Moses when he was going to uh, have a holy moment with Moses, he would say, take your shoes off. You're going to be on holy ground. And to approach the perfection of God, the pure, absolute perfection of God with a wrong attitude, with a wrong motive, inappropriately, was dangerous. It was so perfect. It was so good that if anything that was imperfect came close, it was dangerous, even deadly. There are warnings as Moses is receiving the Ten Commandments on Sinai. Don't set foot on the mountain. Just let Moses go up. If anyone else sets foot there, it's going to be bad. There were severe warnings for mistreating the tabernacle or the temple. 
There's a story where the Ark of the Covenant, which was designated by God as holy, was stumbling as they were carrying it along, and a guy goes out to steady it, and he approached it unworthily, and that was the last thing he did. There's an absolute perfection around the things that God designates as holy. And this is why God initiated an overlap. God is perfect. To approach God's perfection inappropriately, bad attitude, bad motives, sinfulness, junk in your life, unclean things, impure things, it was deadly. And so God, motivated by love, created an overlap. So a helpful way to think about it is if there's two circles, one circle has the absolute perfection, holiness of God. And another circle has the world as you and I know it. And as we know, the world that is messed up is filled with sin and destruction and evil and all sorts of craziness. And these two circles, God initiated an overlap. And he said, okay, if we have this overlap and we approach this overlap with with honesty and we approach this overlap with, with cleanliness and with purity, then we can have relationship. Then you can be my people. And in the Old Testament, in the book of Leviticus, This invitation to holiness came from God. You must be holy because I, the Lord, your God, am holy. Come into the overlap. Join me in my holiness. Join me in the perfection. And the Old Testament, if you know it well, you'll know that as God initiates this overlap, as God says we're going to bring the perfect and the imperfect and we're going to create an overlap so that you can step into the overlap, don't bring your junk. Don't bring your sinfulness. Don't bring the things that are going to compromise the holiness. Distance yourself from sin. Distance yourself from other things that may not be sinful but were considered unclean or impure. And then make a bunch of sacrifices to pay the price for the sins that have been committed. Then you can step into the overlap. If you did everything right, if you've got everything figured out, if you do the things that I'm going to tell you, you can step into the overlap and we can have relationship. We can be in community. You can be my people. And that is the quickest summary you'll ever get of the book of Exodus all the way through the book of Deuteronomy. Is if you can line up, if you can do what I'm asking you to do, you can step into the overlap. And this sets us up perfectly for the message of Jesus. The Old Testament makes up uh, three quarters of the Bible, if you have one. And the last quarter is uh, really the life and the story of what happened when Jesus came to earth and what happened immediately afterwards as the church began. The first three quarters are what happened in human history before Jesus came onto the scene 2,000 years ago. And the first three quarters set up perfectly how much we desperately need a Savior. And we can see from the life of Jesus and uh, what the Bible records about the first century is that there are really three things that the Jewish people still did, three of the holiness commandments that separated them from the Romans that they lived among. The three things were circumcision, food laws, and the Sabbath. And those things meant that the Jewish people were separated from the Romans around them, from the Roman overlords that were around them and the world that was around them. And all the sacrifices and all the ceremonies and rituals, the laws, the regulations, it all builds to our appreciation of the holiness of God. See, if you read the Old Testament, specifically books like Leviticus or Numbers or Deuteronomy and even the last half of Exodus, and you read all the requirements that God lays out, if you're going to step into this overlap, this is what you have to do. This is what I'm requiring of you. This is essential. If you're going to be my people, if you're going to step in, you need to do this. If anything else, it builds up in us an appreciation of how amazing and how perfect God really is. If it's that difficult for us to have a relationship with him, how amazing must he be? If it's that impossible 
for you and I to live up to the standard that he lays out, if it's that much hard work, if it's this many requirements, how truly perfect must he be? And then Jesus comes and starts to mix things up. In our two circles, we have the holy and the purity and the perfection of God, and then we have the world around us which is filled with sin and craziness. And in the overlap is where we could meet with God in the Old Testament standard. And Jesus leaves the absolute eternal perfection. Born of a virgin, as we've sung today, was born into the mess. He didn't even step into the overlap. He stepped into the complete destruction of humanity and said, not only am I going to help you experience the overlap, I'm going to help you step into the eternal perfection. And that, if one person claps, we all have to. Come on, somebody. Colossians 1.19, for God in all his fullness was pleased to live in Christ. And through him, God reconciled everything to himself. He made peace with everything in heaven and on earth by means of Christ's blood on the cross. Our relationship with God is only possible because of Jesus' ultimate sacrifice on the cross. It means we can live in the overlap here on earth and we can live with a confidence and assurance that in eternity, we will step into that with him. Our eternity is settled and secure, completely separated from evil, completely cut off from pain. This circle over here, when you and I step into an eternity as believers, no pain, no suffering, no weeping. And Jesus crossed all the way over to bring as many people as possible over to that side. The best news is that this transfer from this circle to that circle is open to anyone and everyone that believes and puts their faith in Jesus. Jesus left the perfect holiness and stepped into the evil and impure to bring the invitation to holiness far and wide. Believing and understanding the absolute perfection and the holiness of God it can lead to some distorted views. It can cause us some problems. It can cause us some things that are going to trip up. The first thing is that if we have our eyes focused on and we remember, and it's at the front of our mind, that God is truly perfect, that God is truly perfect, and we are not worthy to step into his presence, that God laid out that this is hard work for you to get in. Unfortunately, a religious, legalistic mindset very easily starts to come forward. If we recognize how unworthy we are, how perfect God is, how much he hates evil, we can develop a religious and legalistic approach to God. We try to keep earning his approval. We keep trying to earn our spot in the overlap. And unfortunately, it means that we approach God with terror and fear. Another distorted perspective that comes about is that we get careless. We go the complete other opposite of the extreme. If we hear the good news about Jesus that this message of being able to cross from this circle over here to this eternal circle over here is as simple as putting your faith in Jesus, praying a prayer, and believing that he is Lord. It can evoke in us a careless approach to faith. That if our security is, you know, our eternal security is there, and all we have to do, it can, we can buy this idea, and it's a wrong thinking, that the message of Jesus is cheap. Because it's so accessible, because the veil was torn, because he made it possible to step into eternity, because it's freely available to anyone that put their faith in him, we can take on wrong thinking that this means that it was cheap. And we can develop a careless attitude. 
I think it's pretty straightforward and I wouldn't expect any argument from anyone here that we can be honest enough and we can be realistic enough to say that both of these extremes are wrong and unhealthy. But what happens is that we try to find a place somewhere in the middle. We don't want to be religious and fanatical and bitter, angry people. We also don't want to be completely irreverent and careless towards the things of faith. So we try and find a balance between the two extremes. I don't want to be too irreverent, but I also don't want to be too religious. So let me find a place on this spectrum where I'm comfortable. If you can imagine going to a restaurant and you have an honest waiter, and you say to the waiter, is the fish any good? And the waiter says, no, it's terrible. And you say, well, how's the chicken? And the waiter says, ah, it's terrible too. You wouldn't say, I'll have half of both. But this is what we're doing when we try and find our comfort point on this spectrum of not wanting to be irreverent, not wanting to be careless and casual towards the things of the kingdom, but also we don't want to become religious psychos. So we try and find a point where we're comfortable. And what I want to suggest to you here today that there is an invitation to another option, and that's the invitation to holiness. The message of Jesus is not an invitation to become a religious fanatic. It's also not an invitation to become apathetic about faith, life, and eternity, but as an invitation to holiness. And as I've dug into the word holy this week, it startled me. Uh, the New Testament uses, uh, talks about holiness, uses the word holiness and the other words around the word holiness uh, more than the Old Testament. It's said more frequently in the New Testament than the Old Testament that God's unique perfection which is both separate and creates separation from what is common or evil. This is what we're invited into. And what I wrote down, and hopefully this gives you something to think about this week, is that God's invitation to holiness minimizes religious work, but maximizes passion for Jesus. God's invitation to holiness minimizes religious work, but maximizes passion for Jesus. It's not an invitation to find our point on the spectrum but to get off of the spectrum, leave behind apathy, to stop trusting in our religious works, but move forward in the life of holiness that God has called us to. And our main scripture for today, and uh, if there's any scripture from today that I would want you to grab onto and say, yep, this is the scripture that we talked about today, it's from 2 Timothy 1, 9, uh, 1 verse 9. For God saved us and called us to live a holy life. He did this not because we deserved it, but because that was his plan from before the beginning of time to show us his grace through Christ Jesus. And now he has made all of this plain to us by, appearing, uh, by the appearing of Christ Jesus, our Savior. He broke the power of death and illuminated the way to life and immortality through the good news. Now, I remember one of the temptations we talked about was the temptation to become careless, to become apathetic about the faith to take a part of the message that this is once and for all, this is for everybody. The door to the kingdom of heaven is wide open for anyone that would walk through it. And that feeling of, of apathy, that feeling of being casual or careless about it. Look at this verse here, this point that we just read. He broke the power of death and illuminated the way to life and immortality. How can that evoke apathy out of somebody? This one sentence from the Bible encapsulates the significance of the message of Jesus, that he broke the power of death in our lives, that he illuminated the way to life, both here on earth and into a holy eternity. This is absolutely unbelievable news. 
remember um, when I was youth pastoring in Montana, I was invited to speak to, um, we used to do these meetings, we would get together with maybe four or five other youth groups, and I was invited to go speak, and as I was preparing, I was writing a message, and point number three of point number two, so like point two, sub point three, I wrote down in my notes, if you believe that Jesus is who he says he is, the only logical response is to follow him with everything. I wrote that down, and since then, since I wrote that down a long time ago now, that thought, that philosophy, that idea, that mindset has really come to define how I approach life and ministry. If you believe that Jesus is who he says he is, what we just read in 2 Timothy, if you believe that he broke the power of death, and you believe that he illuminated the way to life and immortality, if you believe that, how on earth can we respond by following him with anything less than absolutely everything? If we believe this, the only logical response is to follow him with everything. I don't today, and I never will understand how someone can believe the message of Jesus and be ho-hum about it. If we believe that Jesus is who he says he is, the only logical response is to follow him with everything. And somehow there, there is a lie that the world is believing more and more. The great lie is that God says you shouldn't sin because he wants to deprive you of something good. The being holy is denying yourself of something good. The picture of a holy person is someone that is missing out, someone that is angry, someone that is bitter, someone that is, um, that is saying no to all the things that are going to make them happy. That is the lie of the world. The message of the Bible is that sin ruins people's lives and separates us from God. And God loves us too much to pretend that sin will lead to anything good. All of human history and the world around us proves this is correct. This is nothing to respond to half-heartedly. This is the greatest news, the greatest message that humanity could ever know. And if you truly believe this, it is right and appropriate to build your life centered around Jesus. He broke the power of death and illuminated the way to life and immortality. My friends, there is no room for a careless response if you believe that that is true, what has been said about our Lord. Amen? Amen. Well, the other tendency is to become angry, judgmental, and religious. Another verse from 2 Timothy, not because we deserved it. Not because we deserved it. We don't deserve the good news of Jesus. We don't deserve the cross. We don't deserve the empty grave. But God gives it. He gives it purely motivated by love, motivated for his love for humanity, love for you, love for me, love for our next door neighbors, love for our coworkers, love for people all over the globe. Not because we deserved it. And this act of becoming a believer means that there is a status change. Now, this is one of the reasons, I don't want to get too sidetracked with this, but this is why we celebrate baptism so passionately here, is that change of status. My kids, for instance, uh, they are woods. They've done nothing to earn it, nothing to deserve it, but they are woods. They may do a whole bunch of stuff that is out of line with wood family values. They are still woods. That status has not changed And one of the things that, uh, one of the first things that John writes in his gospel is that to all who believed him and accepted him, he gave the right to become children of God. That status change, just like my kids are woods, whether they like it or not, and sometimes they have, uh, they have strong feelings. They are woods. 
We are the children of God. If we have believed him and accepted him, there has been a status change. We have gone from unrighteous to righteous. We have gone from distant and separated from God to being in right standing with him, not because we deserved it, but because of the goodness and the grace of Jesus. It's almost like a religious attitude. A comparison I thought of this week is uh, if, if somebody was flown, I'm going to assume that helicopters can get to the top of Mount Everest. I truly don't know. But if a helicopter drops somebody at the very, very top, the absolute peak of Mount Everest, and somebody gets out and says, okay, now I'm going to start climbing. You're already there, fam. So then they say, well, climbing is how I'm going to get to the top of this mountain. So I'm just going to keep running in circles and convince myself I'm climbing the mountain. That is a picture of somebody that is driven and motivated by religion. You're already on the top of the mountain. God's placed you there. There's been a status change. You running around and around and around trying to convince yourself that you're climbing and gaining any advantage is only fooling yourself. And after, a, after time of running around and around and around, you start to even realize you're not getting anywhere. So then what you do is you start looking at the other people running around and around, and you have to then convince yourself you're running around in circles is better than they're running around in circles. Meanwhile, nobody's gaining any ground. Nobody is loved any more by God or any less by God. That status is secure. And if you start to fall down the mountain, guess who's there to pick you back up and place you right back on top? Not because you have worked your way back up the mountain. The next thought is that the status change leads to transformation. And when I first came to America, how many of you know that America is different from Britain? We don't just talk funny. I had to change what side of the road I drived on. Drived on? That's not a word. Drove on. In England, we say drived. Can you imagine if I was trying to drive on the left-hand side of the road right now? I had to change. There'd been a status change. Transformation needed to happen. As a quick side note, you can't get any good fish and chips anywhere. I have to plead with my parents to send us good candy. I'm going to stop talking because I'm just going to get my, all kinds of emotional up here. But there's another church word that I'm going to uh, bring out for you today, and we could have spent a week on this word, but it's the word sanctification. And even though the word sanctification and holiness in the English don't sound alike at all, in the New Testament Greek, they're from the same root word. So in English, they sound very different, and you wouldn't necessarily connect them uh, just by looking at them, because obviously sanctification and holiness don't sound the same. But in the Greek, if you look into it, they're from the same root word. And the sanctification is, 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 the work, is the work of God in bringing about this purification. The work of God in bringing about holiness into our lives. It's the role of the Holy Spirit. And there is a promise that the Holy Spirit is not here to bring guilt and shame and rejection for what we've done and the mistakes that we've made. But there is a promise to correct and clean up whatever mess needs to get cleaned up. And if you think of it this way, the, uh, the verse we read from Leviticus, let me read it to you again. You must be holy because I, the Lord your God, am holy. This was first spoken to a people who had only just been released from slavery in Egypt. 
And I want you to contrast God's approach to this invitation to join him in holiness and compare it with uh, the approach of the Egyptian religions that they had fled and run away from. So this is uh, something that was written um, by a religious expert in Egypt. The gods are ever in their perfection. Now this is talking about the Egyptian false gods. This is not talking about the God of the Bible. The gods are ever in their perfection. Man is ever in his failure. The words one, uh, men say are one thing, the deeds of the God are another. There is no perfection before the gods, but there is failure before him. If one strains to seek perfection, in a moment he has marred it. This is the Egyptian philosophy to holiness. Gods are perfect, you people are not. That's how it is. But what a different approach from the God of the Bible where he says to his people that have just run away from this nonsense, I'm going to invite you and bring you into my holiness. I'm going to make a way for you to step into the overlap and something through you learning that you can step into the overlap, I'm going to get you ready so that when my son leaves absolute complete and utter perfection and goes into the world that is an absolute disaster and an absolute mess and ruled by evil, you will see that I can pull you into an eternity of holiness. What a contrast from the Egyptian faith. God's invitation to holiness includes the promise to clean us up. God's invitation to holiness includes the promise to clean us up. I want to read this from the book of Isaiah. Isaiah 6.1. It was in the year of King Uzziah died that I saw the Lord. He was sitting on a lofty throne, and the train of his robe filled the temple. Attending him were mighty seraphim, each having six wings. With two wings they covered their faces, with two they covered their feet, and with two they flew. They were calling out to each other, holy, holy, holy is the Lord of heaven's armies. Now it's Worth noting that them saying, holy, 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 is a written literary way of saying, this is really, really important. Holy, 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 saying it three times is essentially, let's underline it, make it italic, and in bold all at the same time. Holy, 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 the whole earth is filled with his glory. Their voices shook the temple to its foundations, and the entire building was filled with smoke. Then I said, it's all over, I am doomed, for I am a sinful man. I have filthy lips. Anyone else be really happy if this was the biggest sin concern you had in your life? And I live among a fil uh, people with filthy lips, yet I have seen the king of the lords of heaven's armies. Then one of the seraphim flew to me with a burning coal he had taken from the altar. With a pair of tongs he touched my lips with it and said, see, this coal has touched your lips. Now your guilt is removed and your sins are forgiven. Now here we see Isaiah, he is willing to admit his flaws. And the angel doing the work of God cleans him up, burns it up, deals with it so that he can move on in freedom. And as we just read, his sins are forgiven. And there's another example I want to draw your attention to. Not necessarily easy to see the dots between these, but ride with me on this. John 13, verse 4. So he got up from the table talking about Jesus, took off his robe, wrapped a towel around his waist, and poured water into a basin. Then he began to wash the disciples' feet drying them with a towel he had around him. When Jesus came to Simon Peter, Peter said to him, Lord, are you going to wash my feet? Jesus said, you don't understand now what I'm doing, but someday you will. No, Peter protested. You will never, ever wash my feet. And Peter had good reason for exclaiming like this and objecting to this. Jewish men didn't wash other Jewish men's feet. 
To wash someone's feet in that day meant that they had spent all day walking through a whole bunch of gross stuff, and washing their feet would mean that you were ceremonially unclean. You couldn't engage in the holy things that were found in the overlap. So Peter's saying, you don't get to what, you can't wash my feet. That's going to start messing up the holy things. Jesus replied, unless I wash you, you won't belong to me. If you don't let me clean you up, this relationship I want to have with you isn't going to work. If you and I are going to have a relationship, you need to let me clean you up. Because Peter, you can't do it yourself. Simon Peter exclaimed, then wash my hands and head as well, Lord, not just my feet. Jesus replied, a person who has bathed all over does not need to wash except for the feet to be entirely clean. Basically, Peter, put your clothes back on. (laughs) We're just doing feet today. (laughs) But I do think that that is an incredible thing that Jesus said to Peter. If you're going to have anything to do with me, if we're going to be in relationship, if I'm going to be Lord of your life, If I'm going to be your savior, if you're putting your faith in me, if I'm going to be the way that you can get out of this circle over here and you can step into eternity, for us to do this, you need to let me clean you up. There is a promise that as we're invited to be a part of God's holiness, he is committed to helping us get all kinds of cleaned up, to burn our tongues and to wash our feet. For this relationship to work, we need to let Jesus clean us up, to heal the wounds of the past, to bring emotional peace, to bring change to our hearts and our desires. God burns the tongue and washes the feet. And I wrote this down, and I hope it's helpful for you, but I wrote, true true heart transformation is demonstrated by what causes strong emotions. True heart transformation is demonstrated by what causes strong emotions. And oftentimes, there are numerous times in the New Testament, especially in the letters of the New Testament, where the writer would list a bunch of negative, strong emotions followed up with, but now you feel like this. The, possibly the most obvious one is the fruit of the Holy Spirit. Here's a whole bunch of negative stuff that you were doing. But now, God's active in your life, and there's been true heart transformation, and so this is what's happening in your life now. See, when there's a true heart transformation, when God is really involved and God's cleaning up our hearts and the Holy Spirit's doing his work, that God's fulfilling his promise of not just leaving us where we are, but his invitation to holiness means that he is cleaning up our hearts, cleaning up our minds, cleaning up our lives. That the things that cause joy, anger, peace, determination, devastation, frustration, real high strung emotions starts to change. What used to bring joy doesn't bring joy anymore. What used to bring anger doesn't bring anger anymore. Now, something else, something godly brings anger. What used to provide a temporary sense of peace no longer does. But that's found in him. What brings a sense of determination or devastation or frustration, all those strong emotions, how they get ignited in our lives starts to transform. And from there, behavior and conduct is sure to follow. Ephesians 4. Since you have heard about Jesus and have learned the truth that comes from him, throw off your old sinful nature and your former way of life, which is corrupted by lust and deception. Instead, let the Spirit renew your thoughts and attitudes. Put on your new nature, created to be like God, truly righteous and holy. So how does all of this, how does all of this make a difference? How does all this matter 
to you and I on Monday morning or Wednesday lunchtime or Friday night, I want to pull back to something that started sharing with you a moment earlier about the first century Jewish people. There were three activities, three customs that they held on to very tightly by way of causing separation between them and the culture around them. There were three things they held on to. It was circumcision, food laws, and the Sabbath. And I think these help us as imagery to help us get what this whole concept and this whole thought of the holiness of God and what it can mean for you and for me, I think that it's a helpful backdrop. The first thing is the idea of circumcision. And I believe, and I want to suggest to you that this can point us towards someone's private life. Circumcision is something that God started with Abraham. And those that were affected by circumcision, there was a deeply personal way that this affected them. And yet it was viewed as deeply important. And Paul reframes this whole subject of circumcision in the book of Romans. True circumcision is not merely obeying the letter of the law. Rather, it is a change of heart produced by the Spirit. So even if we don't practice physical circumcision as required in the Old Testament, our private lives are an area where we should be separated from evil. In our private lives, when no one's looking, we're accepting God's invitation to holiness embracing that he promises to help clean us up. So we're not beaten with guilt, but instead we're filled with hope that he's involved in this whole thing and he is committed to fixing us up. Our private life is another one area where we need to invite the holiness of God and accept God's invitation to live a holy life with him. The second thing, food laws. I want to suggest to you that this is a good picture of public life. Jesus often caused problems because he would eat with people that he shouldn't be eating with. The disciples caused problems because they weren't washing their hands properly. And the Christians would later on disregard the food laws altogether and see that requirement of the law was fulfilled in the new covenant. But if you read the book of Acts and the letters of the New Testament, you'll see that this caused enormous social problems. It wasn't as simple as we can all eat bacon now. People we were previously standoffish with people we previously had distanced with and never associated with publicly, we're now inviting to the table. People who previously we had made sure we never associated with, we don't want anyone to ever think we would ever talk to that kind of person. Now, we're making room for them at the table. This obedience or disobedience to food laws that the Jewish people were adhering to in the first century would have been known publicly. My suggestion to you is that this invitation to holiness as New Testament believers is an invitation for this to transform and take place and be noticeable and observable in our public life. And the third thing is the Sabbath. The Sabbath was an invitation to trust God. To have a Sabbath, to have one day off a week is to say no to 14% of your weekly income. To take a day off was to say, you know what, I'm going to trust that by cutting out one day of work in my week, cutting out a day's salary, all of this is actually going to help because I'm resting and trusting in God. This rest, this one day a week, was a sign of faith and confidence that God is going to take care of them, that God is going to provide. So when Jesus invites us to find rest in Him, it's an invitation to trust Him with everything. Hebrews 4 goes into great detail about what it means to have rest in Jesus now, for Jesus to be the Lord of the Sabbath. And that's an invitation for us to trust in Him. So while the first century Jewish people were separated and holy from the community around them by circumcision, food laws, and Sabbath, we see God's invitation to holiness work out in both our private and public lives 
as we trust Jesus and rest in our relationship with him. We see God's invitation to holiness work out in both our private and public lives as we trust Jesus and rest in our relationship with him. Remembering the holy is God's unique perfection, which is both separate and creates separation from what is common or evil. Never forgetting that Jesus left perfection and holiness and stepped into the evil and impure to bring an invitation to holiness far and wide. That God's invitation to holiness minimizes religious work but maximizes a passion for Jesus. Never, never believing the great lie of the world that God says you shouldn't sin because he wants to deprive you of something good. That being holy is denying yourself of something positive. Remembering that God's invitation to holiness includes the promise to clean us up and that true heart transformation is demonstrated by what causes strong emotions because we see God's invitation to holiness work out in both our private and public lives as we trust Jesus and rest in our relationship with him. I got a couple of questions for you and hopefully have a chance this week to think about this and pray about this a little. The first question is, how does God's invitation to holiness challenge any religious or careless mindsets? Are you still stuck in, in trying to find the balance between, you know, I don't, I don't want to be too irreverent, and I don't want to be too casual and careless about my faith, but uh, at the same time, I also don't want to be a religious nutter, so I've got to find somewhere in the middle on that. Are you still stuck in that? Is there a challenge to being too religious or too careless? Second question, am I letting God burn my tongue and wash my feet? Isaiah had hesitations. Peter had hesitations. But Jesus gave that strong word. This relationship means you are going to let me clean you up. Before we wrap up, I want to pull back to that note that I made youth pastoring many years ago. If you believe that Jesus is who he says he is, the only logical response is to follow him with everything. And you may be here today, and this may be the first time you've been in church for a long time. It may be the first time in church ever. I don't know your life story. I don't know what it is that's got you to the point where you're here in church today, listening to this message, being a part of this worship service, being a part of the songs that have been sung already. I don't know what's got you to this point, but I don't believe it's a coincidence that you're here today. I believe that God works in the hearts of people, in the lives of people. And if you're here today listening to this message, I believe there's something here for you. You may not have any confidence that God is for real. You may not believe that God loves you. You may not believe that the creator of the universe cares about you at all, but you're here today and maybe something clicked. Whether it's something that was sung as part of the worship songs or maybe it's one of the Bible verses that I read from, but maybe something has clicked today and you are now at the point where you would say, you know what, I believe this is for real. You may not even be able to explain why you believe this, but you're at that point where you'd say, you know what, I actually believe this message is for real. And my friend, if you believe that, then you believe this can change your entire life from front to back, left to right, upside down, inside out, back to front. This can transform everything. If you're here today and you say, you know what, I've never made a decision to follow Jesus, but I believe, my friend, you are out of excuses for waiting one more day. This is the right time. This is the perfect moment for you to decide, you know what, I'm drawing a line in the sand. I'm going to cross it. I'm going to start figuring out what it means to live a life of faith. And you may be here today and you may know that this is for you. 
If that is you, I'd love to pray for you. So I want to invite everyone here just to close your eyes and bow your heads. This is just to give privacy to people around you. I give you my word. We're not going to do anything weird. We're not going to do anything that's strange or do anything to make you feel uncomfortable. But I want to give you a chance to respond. And if you be honest enough and brave enough today to say, you know what? I'm not following God. I'm not following Jesus. But I want to start. I'd love to pray for you. So if this is you today, here in the room, if you could just put up your hand. At home, if you just click the button that says, I raise my hand. If this is you today, just raise your hand just for a moment. Amen. Amen. Anybody else here? If you want to make that decision to follow Jesus today, I'd love to pray for you. Anybody else? Awesome. Amen. Amen. All right, Word of Life Church, can we please celebrate people making decisions both in here, I believe at home. We're going to pray a prayer together, and the words are going to be on the screen, and I'll say a line, and then if you would repeat it back to me, I believe a prayer like this has the power to change life. So come on, at home, join in as well. Lord Jesus, I believe you died for me. I want to follow you. I invite you to be Lord of my life. Help me follow you every day. I want to leave my old life of sin behind. And heal my broken relationship with God. In Jesus' name, amen. Come on, everybody. One more time. Let's celebrate with people. Amen. But if you put your hand up a moment ago, either in the room or at home, three things I'd ask you to do. First thing, today, tell somebody. Next thing, tomorrow, Read your Bible. If you don't have one, we have one at the info desk here or online. You can download one for free. Possibly start in the book of John, but start reading your Bible. If not today, tomorrow. And then next week, be right back here in church. So come on. So today, tell somebody. Tomorrow, get in your Bible. And next week, be right back here. Amen? Amen. Come on, everybody. Let's welcome back Megan and James. Thanks for listening. Feel free to visit our website, that's wordoflifeag.org, for more content and some next steps to deepen your faith. You can also follow us on Facebook and Instagram to jump into the conversation happening online throughout the week. Hope you have an amazing rest of your week.